keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Catalyst with Terry Ostroviak. In the next hour, Terry and his guests discuss how to accelerate your business success and turn possibility into certainty. So turn up your speakers and hold on. Here's your host of the Quantum Leap Catalyst, Terry Ostroviak. Hi, everybody. This is Terry Ostroviak speaking to you from Tel Aviv in Israel. Beautiful day here once again, 6 o'clock in the evening. It is here right now, and I know in the United States, people are just kind of getting up at 8 o'clock in the morning. Goodness knows, again, what time it is in, in New Zealand or Australia, probably in the middle of the night. And in Europe, it's around 5 o'clock. So uh, we've got a real mess of different time zones that people are listening in. Our, our subject today is a very, very topical one today, especially because of some big news that took place here, uh, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. The topic is how does a small country, such as Israel, produce so many high-tech international companies? And you will be astounded when we listen to our guest today who will talk about that very subject and tell us what it is in this culture that makes uh, this environment so ripe for high-tech international companies to suddenly develop. Our guest today is Boaz Dinti, B-O-A-Z, or B-O-A-Z if you're in the United States, Dinti, D-I-N-T-E. He's a managing partner of a venture capital company called Evergreen Venture Partners. He has worked with high-tech companies in all stages of development, holds a BSc degree in electrical engineering, specialized in computer design and communications, and from the Haifa Technion, he has an MBA magna cum laude as well, but that one comes from Tel Aviv University. He sits on the board of a number of international high-tech companies. He's got a real feel of what's going on in the world. Um, one of the things he says that he would like to discuss today is why so many high-tech startups occur here, what kind of culture produces the entrepreneurial ventures, and why so many of these businesses have been highly successful as well as sustainable, which is unusual. So I'd like to welcome you today, Boaz Dinti. Hi, Boaz. Hi, Terry. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure for me to be with you today. Oh, great to have you as well. Thank you for making the time. Tell us, first of all, what it is, uh, tell us a little bit about your company, just for a moment, uh, very, very briefly, and, uh, and, and why you specialize in, in high-tech startups, and what yeah, kind? Okay, well, Evergreen is a venture capital, uh, one of the pioneers in Israel, was established in 1987. Uh, we focus on investing in technology companies, private companies, in very, very early stages of their life, what we call SEED, E-E-D, yes, which, is the, which is the really, really beginning stages. We sometimes invest in true entrepreneurs in a business plan, and our vision is to provide those uh, companies the capital initially, but also the guidance and the support and the strategy to build out of those companies, hopefully the next uh, Microsoft or in the, Israeli, uh, in the Israeli market, the next checkpoint. Okay, so what do you think it is in the culture over here that has encouraged so many people to get involved in, in high tech? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons, but one of the major reasons is, uh, is having a strong uh, technological uh, environmental in Israel. And what really kicked off the industry in the beginning, I think, is uh, the uh, technology innovation that was coming out of the, the army. 
As you know, uh, uh, the army in Israel is uh, compulsory, and uh, the army has the Israeli army does have some of the elite uh, technology units uh, in it, and uh, they recruit the, probably the most uh, brilliant and uh, brightest uh, young uh, students uh, to join the army. They take them through a special course. Uh, they all have engineering degrees. And those, uh, those people work on probably the most advanced and cutting-edge technologies there are in the world today for the uh, sake of the army. Uh, at the age of 25, 30, 35, depends how many years they serve in the army, when these people leave the army, they are probably uh, the most uh, brightest people and skilled and experienced in really developing cutting-edge technology products. And these are the people that... Uh, when they left the army, actually seeded and started up this technology market and startup environment in Israel in the late 70s, beginning of the 80s. Wow! So you're saying this in a sense is like a nursery for for a whole high tech industry, and they compulsory to go to the army, so everybody gets involved, men and women. That, that, that's correct, and if you look uh, back at uh, the most successful Israeli uh, technology companies in the past, you'll see that most of them, if not all of them, were founded by ex-military people that uh, served in the army as engineers or as PhDs, and uh, after leaving the army, they set up, uh, uh, set up these companies based on the experience they had and the technology experience they had, and those companies became uh, world leaders in their markets. That's astounding. I could imagine that there's a great deal of discipline that goes into uh, developing these kinds of people with the academic uh, backgrounds and the knowledge that they have. But how do they how do they manage to survive in a in a in the hurly burly of a commercial world? Well, that, 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 that's the challenges, and that was the challenges in the early uh, early years. And I think that's probably one of the roles that we have as venture capitalists because. Uh, you know, that's when we uh, support those companies in the early stages and really provide the guidance and the help to those uh, bright individuals on the business skills that they're lacking, the financial skills that they're lacking, uh, the uh, market skills that they're lacking. And when I say we provide the guidance, not necessarily that we're, you know, telling them how and what to do, but more giving them support by bringing into the company people that complement their skills from those directions and really create an environment of a team in the early stage where the team comprises of bright technologist people, many times out of the army with experience, but on the other hand, experienced and seasoned business people that can support them and provide them the added value. Well, that's fascinating. So explain to me, how, how does the army background... Um, assist these people to be that successful. Obviously, they come in, they bring in the knowledge, their own knowledge. They uh, they are trained, but they obviously very bright people that that have been selected for these functions. What is it in the army culture that that makes it makes them as successful as they are? But first of all, being selected in the army, they go through a selection process. So oh. naturally, the army is taking only the very best students uh, to serve in these positions in the army. So. Initially, this group uh, of a couple of, I don't know, 100, maybe up to 1,000, um, you know, the numbers, uh, are probably the best students that graduated from, uh, from high school in, in Israel during that year. And then uh, they work in a very, very tough uh, environment, and the tough environment is that they have to be ahead of the pack 
of the world in developing their products. I mean, as you know, Israel, unfortunately, is still surrounded with uh, some enemies. And uh, our, we, we're, we're a small country with not too many people. Our army is relatively small. We have to be sophisticated on the technology, and we have to be two or three steps ahead of, uh, of our neighbors uh, in terms of technology, by advanced technology and compromising the lack of people with technology. And these these uh, these uh, young engineers are forced to, to uh, uh, deal with very very complex and multidisciplinary uh, projects in, in very tight tight time schedules, working around the clock, uh, almost 24 hours a day, uh, in order to develop and release some of the most advanced products in the world, where there's no really but anybody else they can look and copy or do a similar product from. They have to really design the product from scratch. Then they have to find the right elements, integrate them, and, real, and develop the software and the whole system around it. And that requires a lot, of, a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of creativeness, innovation, technology innovation, uh, and, and project planning and meeting milestones and time frames. So all of that combined together really uh, develops excellence at a very young age. What kind of age are you talking about? Oh, I mean, the, they join the Army at the age of uh, 18, and... Uh, and uh, as I said, they're already, they do a degree, they usually finish their degree in two to three years, and uh, they're in the army, you know, from the age of uh, probably 21 for at least five years, so. So they go into the army with the degrees? Yeah, they usually uh, start the army uh, with a degree, yeah. They get selected before the army, and the army sends them to a special program uh, in universities, they do a degree, and then they join the army for around five, for a minimum of five years. Okay, so that, so that means that they're around 20, what, 24, 25, 26, 27? They start the army at the age probably of 21, 22, and then the army, well, it depends. Some of them obviously sign on for longer and keep on working yeah. in the army, but uh, they, they, the, the younger ones, uh, the early ones, end at the age of 27, 28, the army. Okay. And so these uh, are the best and the brightest. These are the best and the brightest, and what that is that is created is that initially... Israel is known very much for its innovation in technology, its disruptive technology, its very, very strong technology background of many of the startups in Israel. And as a result, many of the large uh, U.S. international uh, companies identified that in very early stages and started setting up R&D centers in Israel. The IBM was probably the first in the 70s to set up a very large R&D center in Israel, Right. Intel followed uh, with probably the largest R&D center outside the U.S. And since then, we've had uh, many companies uh, setting up R&D centers in Israel, such as Cisco and Siemens, Motorola, Nortel, General Electric, uh, and HP, and many, many others. And uh, that large set of U.S. major international uh, technology players setting up large R&D centers in Israel has really created the next wave of deal flow uh, for generating startups. Okay. Actually, if you look at it, there was actually two waves here. The first was the military, which created the market, and then after the military created this large R&D, many of the major uh, international technology players came and set up here R&D centers, large R&D centers, okay. and people then after experiencing working with international companies, right. uh, uh, built networks between the U.S. and Israel, 
lift those companies to set up their own Oh, We need to go into a break right now, and we'll be away just for a few minutes. That's a message for you, but also for people that are listening in, and it's very fascinating, and I'm just going to ask you what the differences are between this economy, uh, this um, high-tech industry here, as compared with the rest of the world. So let's go into a break. We'll be back with everybody again in a few minutes. Stay with us. Hi, everybody. This is Terry Ostroviak speaking, not from San Diego, once again, but from Tel Aviv in Israel. We're talking to Boaz Dente, the managing partner of a company called Evergreen Venture Partners. Worked in a high-tech field for many, many years. Holds a BSc. He's got an MBA degree, magna cum laude from Tel Aviv University. Sits on the board of a number of international high-tech companies. And today we're talking about how does a small country like Israel, minute in fact, produce so many high-tech international companies. Boaz, tell us for a moment. We, I mean, this is a big fat claim. We produce so many high-tech international companies. Compared with whom? How many? How, how, how many? Was how, how much companies? Yeah. International, well, is that the question? Yeah. I, I mean, if you look, uh, for instance, I'll give you a, uh, we'll talk about another interesting fact. I mean, if you look at the, the natural exit route for Israeli companies uh, as an IPO is on NASDAQ, the U.S. Uh, uh, stock market for technology yes. companies, and Israel is the largest company besides the U.S. Uh, with the companies traded on NASDAQ, even more than Canada. Israeli has more companies traded on NASDAQ than all of Europe combined together. So <laughs> that's astounding, and and I'm sure that that's a little known fact that nobody ever heard before. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I mean, if you look at the the success of the Israeli technology market, uh, international standards, uh, it's really uh, uncomparable, and definitely uncomparable to its size. I mean, you know, Israel, we have a population of six million people in a very very small country. On one hand, on the other hand, in terms of sizes of investments of venture capitalists into technology companies, if Israel was a state in the U.S., we would come third after California and Massachusetts. No other state in the U.S. invests more than we do in Israel. And if we were a country in Europe, we would uh, the amount of money invested in technology companies is more almost than all of Europe combined together. More than the whole of Europe? In technology private companies. Is that so? Mm -hmm. I mean, the amount of money, just to give the figures, the amount of money invested uh, by venture capitalists into technology companies uh, last year was around $1.5 billion. Wow. And I'm talking purely about private companies. Uh, and if you look at the, some of the exits uh, last year of Israeli technology uh, companies, there was M&A transactions that were in excess of uh, $3.5 billion. Wow. It's absolutely amazing, huh? So, uh, so let me ask you the question then. What is it about Israel as compared with other countries that causes this kind of uh, issue? How, how, well, what is what is happening, for instance, overseas as compared with Israel that makes the difference here? Yeah, so we talked about the technology innovation that is coming uh, out of the military and later on coming out of uh, these large, successful uh, uh, corporations, whether the U.S. companies with R&D centers in Israel or Israeli uh, 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 set up uh, companies which are global and successful and leading in their market domain. Yeah. Uh, another one is interesting to uh, to note is the strengthening over the 19s by Soviet immigrants. You know, 
There were many oh, Soviet yeah. immigrants that came to Israel over the 90s, the beginning of the 90s, about a million, which, uh, you know, a population of five million, a million immigrants, that's, that, that's a large amount of people to absorb. Yeah. But they're fortunate many of the people that joined from the Soviet Union were engineers and PhDs, and they strongly helped and supported boosting and, and, and scaling the Israeli technology market. Israel today has the largest engineers per capita in the world by far. We have, I think, 114 engineers per 10,000 population, which is the largest by far in the world. So the content in the rest of the I think people are not going into engineering and science, are they? In, in, in My, I don't know where they where they are and how much they're doing, but uh, there probably is less today. And in Israel, uh, uh, this market is definitely uh, you know received a very strong uh, boost from the Soviet immigrants. By the way, many of them had very uh, in-depth theoretical. Uh, experience together with the Israeli hands-on experience the combination was was very powerful right so you know that's a, that's another uh, market uh, element which extremely uh, extremely helps uh, another reason why I think Israel has succeeded beyond uh, most other countries in the world in this uh, market is it's interesting it's because we have no local market for our technology products and I, I'll explain uh, as I mentioned, Israel is a very small country, and uh, uh, out of the Israeli successful technology companies, their sales of their products in the Israeli market are usually less than 5% of their total revenues. The reason being is that uh, the local market here for technology pro products is, is very, very small, and I'd say close to zero. What that does is it forces the Israeli companies to go global from day one. It forces an Israeli company, if it wants to succeed and be a global leader in its market, to expand beyond Israel, uh, either U.S., Europe, or Asia now, and become a global company from the early days of its, uh, of its foundation. Because right. there's no market here that can support an uh, international leading company. Now, uh, that's forced the, uh, the, the uh, management of companies to be very uh, very smart in identifying their markets, building up very strong networks globally, and moving from markets to markets very flexible because we're not sitting in one location because this is where our market is. If you look at American typical market, they have the whole U.S. market to support. That's a huge market, and until they don't support that market, they don't go outside of U.S. mainly, and vice versa for European companies and definitely for Japanese and Asian markets. For Israeli companies, we have to go global from day one. Now, if you look at Europe, for instance, yeah. you know, if I'm a German startup, I would set up my company in Germany. There's a huge local market in Germany. I would focus the, my company on penetrating the German market. I could create a nice 10, 15, 20 million dollar company just from the German local market. But then, after I've built a whole company and a company culture around localization, it's almost impossible to go global. And then those companies stay relatively small, regional, what, local companies. Why do you companies. say it's almost impossible for them to go global? 
Because to go global, you have to have a completely different culture within the company. Okay. Global so they'd company. They have to change. Yes. They'd have to change. They'd have to change management. They'd have to change their their marketing people. Their right. you know the, the marketing people that they have in their companies are mainly German oriented people that know the German market. But that that isn't sufficient if you want to go global. If you want to go global, you have to understand the international markets. You have to understand. You have to have people that understand the international markets. They know how to interact in international markets. And this is a different set of people. And it's much, much more complicated for a company that once it's thought local to suddenly go global. And those so, companies so who, don't who does who does the international expansion? It's not the same high tech people that are developing the products that you that you're talking about. No, no. I mean, obviously, it's business people that we recruit. I mean, we spend as venture capitalists a lot of time. I spend probably fifty percent of my time outside of Israel, naturally. They're traveling within the markets uh, that uh, our portfolio companies are active in, whether it's Europe, the U.S. mainly, right. all the time looking to strengthen our network, to find uh, partners for our portfolio companies, to find top executives that are interested to join the companies. And we're all the time looking for, for people that can uh, uh, support and enhance uh, on the business, marketing, and sales side of our portfolio companies. So uh, these are people that we're recruiting, but it's, it's a different mindset that you have when you're looking to build a global company than when you're looking to build a local company. You know, it's so interesting that you say this. I remember in years gone by when, I mean, I started doing quite a lot of work in Israel in the early days in, in 1972, 73, um, and uh, I came here, and I remember that the only interest that uh, outside people had or from the United States or Europe was was an interest maybe in investing in stuff in, in Israel. Um, and generally it was a bottomless pit of investment. It just used to disappear. <laughs> and, uh, and in talking around the last few weeks since I've been here in Tel Aviv, uh, I realize now that there is so much benefit from business over here for, um, uh, you know, for, for growth of business, for profits and so on, over and above just merely just uh, giving donations to Israel to keep it going. That's yeah. gone, it seems, to a large degree. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, you know, because of these ties, and, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you another interesting example, Cisco, which is you know, yes. recognized uh, in the world as probably the leading uh, communication infrastructure company. Right. Definitely the fastest growing. I mean, they, uh, they acquired a company in Israel for the first time in 1997 for $50 million. Uh, through that acquisition, they set up a small R&D center in Israel. Yeah. Since then, they've acquired another, if I'm not mistaken, 10 companies in Israel. Only in 2004, I think they acquired four companies. Yeah. That's the largest number of companies they've acquired, probably even comparable to the U.S. Probably in the U.S. they've acquired a little bit more. But outside of the U.S., by far the largest number of these they've acquired. They have two people on the ground here in Israel that all they do is looking for interesting M&A and investment opportunities for Cisco in Israel. And they have an R&D operation today of in excess of 500 people developing some of the most advanced router technologies that Cisco is developing today. So that just gives you another example of yeah. how the model really works and how these large corporations come into Israel through usually a small acquisition, get the flavor, get the feeling of the market environment, and then expand aggressively uh, into the market. Yeah, into international market. 
Yeah, we're going to go into a break in a, in a little while, not right this moment, but in a little while. And I wanted to ask you the question, and maybe you'll answer the question just after the break, Boaz, just think about it for a moment. And that is, what advice would you give for small startups in other countries compared with what happens here? What, what needs to be done that probably isn't being done outside of Israel that would make a big difference? So we'll go to a break now. We'll be back in a while. Stay with us, folks. This could be very, very interesting. See you in a while. Hi, everybody. If you've just joined us a moment ago, we're talking to Boaz Dinti, the managing partner of a, an Israeli uh, venture capital company called Evergreen. And it's, I mean, that tells you a lot. <laughs> he's worked with all kinds of high-tech companies at all stages of development. Uh, he's got a science background, electrical engineering background, computer design background, has an MBA, magna cum laude from Tel Aviv University, and he sits on the board of a number of international high-tech companies. Uh, we're talking about how does a small country like Israel produce so many high-tech international companies, and uh, it's been quite amazing. I mean, probably the largest number on the NASDAQ, he said, outside of the United States, and probably more than, more than the whole of Europe put together. He's talking about the reasons why Israel has so many high-tech startups, what kind of culture produces the ventures, the entrepreneurial ventures, and why so many of these businesses have been highly successful and sustainable. And just before the break, I asked him the question as to what advice would he have for people overseas in relation to uh, getting involved in startups. So why don't you answer that question first? Yeah, that would be great. Uh, first of all, I'd say, and going back to the last point I was talking uh, originally, when you're starting up an early stage company, you should uh, you should definitely think global. I mean, if you want to be a leading company in your market domain, the technology environment, you have to think global. The market is becoming, you know, a very small global village. Communication is much easier than it was in the past, uh, and information gets across very very fast. And if you're planning on developing something which is very innovative, you have to think global because you have to really understand who your competitors are out there and what they're doing. And your competitors can come today from anywhere in the world. You have to understand what are your customers' market needs. And uh, to do that, you have to be talking to the customers, uh, your potential customers around the globe, whether they're in Asia, Europe, or U.S., and they could have each different flavors. And you have to understand clearly what their uh, what their requirements are and what their needs are. So I'd say the first thing that you have to make a decision is think global, go global, and uh, explore the the global market and understand clearly the market needs for your product and understand your competitive landscape. The second element is you know setting up a technology company. It's going to be a rough ride. It's, it, there are good times and good rides, and it's uh, difficult times. And you have to be ready for a, a, a tough, long ride, which hopefully at the end is a very successful one, but it's uh, very rocky along the ride. And to do that, you uh, need to build a very, very strong team that together with you are going to ride the boat through that process. I think uh, the initial team, the core team that you set up, uh, in the, in the early stages of your company is probably the key for your success because these are the people that during the difficult periods are going to stick on and be with you to take the company forward. And uh, without them, it's very, very difficult to uh, survive in this very tough and, uh, environment in the market. The third thing is, uh, you know, especially for Israeli companies, Focus on, 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 on really doing something different, which is a, 
a major leapfrog than what exists today in the market. Make sure that you're doing a must-have product and not something which is nice to have. Make sure that you clearly understand the business model, how you're going to make money out of this venture, and not, we'll figure this out one day later as we uh, gain customers how to make money. All these things should be very clear to you the day before you start raising money or deciding to set up the company. And uh, all in all, I think it's a, it's a very fun ride. It's very exciting. It's very dynamic. You'll meet great people and interesting people along the way. And I'm sure you'll have a lot of fun if you do it right. So you're actually saying we should start off thinking big immediately. Not local, but global. <laughs> yep. Yep. Almost think many think global because... Places. Yeah. Because competition is going to come from everywhere, I mean. You know, in the past, uh, technology was mainly U.S.-centric, but today we're seeing unbelievable technology coming out of China, coming out of, uh, out of Korea, Japan, naturally, India. I mean, you, your competitors can come from anywhere today in the world, and if you're not global and there's no awareness to you globally, then uh, you just won't make it to the market in time. You'll come second or third. You have to you have to aim to be first to the market and the leader. Don't aim to be what about the selection of people? I mean, what you started off saying today, the selection of people is the most vital element of this whole exercise. I mean, the people at the end of the day in an early stage startup, in my view, these these are the key criteria in succeeding. You have to choose the right people and the right team to succeed. It's all about people in the early stages. They create the vision. They create the environment. They hire the people. I mean, if you were, if you were hired at the initial stages, your VPs as average, average uh, individuals, they'll hire average people for them, and you'll have an average company. If you don't hire the best people for your company, even sometimes maybe better than you as the CEO or founder, then the chances of you hire, for them hiring the best people are, are low. And you have to have, in order to succeed in this market, the best people you can find in your market segment. So people are probably the most important element in succeeding in an early stage company. Very I'd say that's probably correct also in later stage, but definitely in early stage. Right. Thank you. That's a, that gives a very good description of what's required. And then the second question that I wanted to ask you was one that uh, was or has to do with uh, what do you look for uh, as a venture capital company uh, with the the organizations that you decide to partner with. Yep. Okay, so so as I said before, there's probably three key elements uh, that we're looking for. It's, it's, it's the people, the entrepreneurs, it's the technology, and it's the market. Uh, you know, there's an interesting mar uh, uh, article I was reading, do you bet on the horse or do you bet on the jockey? The jockey yeah. being the uh, entrepreneur and the horse yeah. being the uh, uh, the market. And there was a debate whether, you know, you should bet on a very, very, very attractive market and then if necessarily, uh, you know, change the people, change the jockey as, uh, as the market, the company expands. And some people voted for the market and some people voted for the uh, jockey. Uh, I, I, I definitely, and we in Evergreen definitely uh, vote for the jockey, as I mentioned before. Uh, we think that it's extremely important that... Uh, the uh, CEO and entrepreneur leading the company, he builds the culture around him. He's the company at the early stages. He has to be somebody outstanding, and around him you build an outstanding company. 
Uh, and we've talked about that, and we spend a lot of time in interviewing the entrepreneurs, spending a lot of time with them on the roads, meeting customers together with them, to really get a feel of how these people are and how capable they are of taking the company all the way to a successful exit, the, uh, and how much of a team player they are and so on, how much leadership they have. The second element is, uh, as I said, market. We're, we're looking for, for markets that can be huge. I mean, if you want to go public in NASDAQ, that means you have to have revenues of anywhere between 50 to $100 million per year and profitable. It means your market needs to be at least a 500 to $1 billion market potential. If it's a small market of $100 million and you take 50% of it, you have no potential to go public in a, in a market such as NASDAQ. There's no, there's no upside and there's no excitement in the company and the growth is very, very limited. And therefore, those companies that operate in those kind of markets are totally uninteresting. Uh, and the last element is technology. As I mentioned before, I think the advantage the Israeli companies have versus other companies in the world is in their technology innovation and their disruptive technology. And uh, we look for very, very high barriers, technology barriers for entry. We like our companies to really have a great technology, a wide patent portfolio, so when they're in the market and competitors see them, they, uh, the time it would take for them to develop a product is at least two to three years. And even then, we're protected with patents, so it may be even more difficult for them. And this is extremely important for us because you want to have that advantage in the market once you, once you start penetrating the market. So I'd say right. those are the three key elements that we look for. And the kind Other of companies that you deal with, I, I noticed... And I had looked through uh, some information about you and about Evergreen, was that you, you, you work in three different uh, categories, don't you, types of businesses? Yeah, we, we, uh, we focus on communication, uh, and it could be all levels of communication, whether it's a chipset, whether it's boards, whether it's systems, yeah. whether it's sold to the cable, to the wireless, uh, to the telco right. players. Then we do software, and mainly it's enterprise software, Internet, media, Right now, media is a very hot, uh, hot uh, topic, and content for media, uh, content for, for, for networks is becoming a very hot market. And the third market we operate is in healthcare. We're mainly in healthcare. We're doing med, uh, med tech, which is medical devices, which is Israel's had a very uh, many uh, success stories in that sector. So these are the three sectors that we're focusing on. Are these sort of germane to the market itself, to this particular market, that caused you to be to have people that were working in those particular industries? Yeah, well, naturally, mainly the communication sector and partly the software. Uh, you know, uh, most uh, was was founded because of, as I mentioned earlier, the military. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the technology developed in the military was in the communication sector and some software. So. I'd say a lot of, uh, that's how they kicked off the communications sector. Right. And uh, MedTech, there's just a lot of uh, scientists here and PhDs. Uh, there is the Weizmann Institute, which is recognized in the world as probably one of the leading institutes for, for medical devices and pharma. And as a result, we have a large concentration uh, of people very knowledgeable in that sector, which has created a, a strong cluster of engineers and uh, managers. So you look for uh, opportunities. We're going into another break again, Boaz. I warned you that this would go very, very fast, and that's exactly <laughs> what it does. <laughs> so when we come back after the break, we'll just summarize and, uh, and, and, and talk about some of the things that people should be looking at in their own marketplaces. So stay with us, folks. 
and we'll come back to uh, Boas in a moment. See you in a while. Hi folks, we're talking today from Tel Aviv in Israel. We're talking to Boaz Dinti, who is a managing partner of a company called Evergreen. It's a venture capitalist organization, and he has worked with, with uh, high-tech companies internationally in all stages of development. He's got a real technical background in quite a number of areas. And we're talking about how does a small country, like Israel, for instance, produce so many high-tech international companies. And uh, we're also talking about why so many of these businesses have been highly successful and sustainable. So we have a, a few minutes before we move into the closing part of our show, and I just asked Boas to briefly give us some, some examples of some of the things that um, some of the companies that, that, that you have worked with that have been highly successful. Tell us about this one we just mentioned a moment ago in the medical field, for instance. Yeah, the company called uh, Medinol, which is a very, uh, very strong company, which was actually founded by, as we talked before, a Soviet immigrant who developed an interesting stent uh, for heart surgery. Uh, which Pretty is actually mentioned. not everybody knows what a stent is, but tell us. Oh, uh, that's difficult. The stent is uh, something that you, put, that, they put that you put through your artery yeah, in your yeah. heart to uh, to keep your sure. veins open. So the blood uh, flows without and blockage. the blood flows without blockage okay. and uh, beautiful. basically, <laughs> uh, yeah, he had a very interesting technology. It's uh, and a very uh, he approached one of the seasoned, experienced uh, business people in Israel. He funded him. He joined as the CEO. They filed very strong patents to protect uh, themselves, and uh, they went out to the market. Uh, they partnered with Boston Scientific. Uh, and uh, Boston Scientific was actually one of the largest distributors of stents in the world. Uh, they took uh, Medinol's technology and actually started distributing it in the world. Uh, as a result, uh, Medinol were making you know, revenues of hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Uh, the profit on these stents was enormous because, I mean, the cost of making a stent is very, very low, but the uh, cost of it at the, for the end user could be at around $1,000, if I'm not mistaken. So it was a very, very profitable uh, business. Uh, uh, unfortunately, what happened towards, uh, after five or six years, the Boston Scientific realized that it's such an attractive business, and uh, they decided to try and uh, manufacture their own stent. Why do they need Medinol? Uh, they started to uh, uh, set up a factory, started trying to manufacture their own stent. Uh, Medinol, obviously, when they found out about it, were uh, furious. It was, according to them, a fringe of their Agreement, and then they were infringing their patents. Uh, they sued Boston Scientific. Uh, uh, it went to court in the U.S. The court went on for about two years, in which resulted uh, uh, that Boston Scientific had to pay Medinol $750 million in cash uh, for infringing their patents and uh, and infringing uh, their uh, their agreement between them. So, example of a medtech company that uh, started off from a Russian immigrant, huh? And started off from technology coming from a yeah. Russian immigrant. So, I mean, right. that's one example. There's let's, many let's other sum examples. Up our, let's sum up now. Let's sum up, that's, okay. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about. So, I would say, you know, uh, probably the, the key uh, uh, messages I have uh, for the audience is that, uh, and the listeners, is that, uh, you know, if you're looking to set up a technology company, uh, first of all, think very global and yeah. make sure that you have the market covered and you know what's happening in the world. Make sure that you talk to customers uh, that are going to be potential acquirers of your product 
and make sure that you talk to them not only in your local market, but make sure you get on the plane and fly to some of the markets outside of your local market and understand those customers also and clearly understand what their needs are. Uh, don't develop a product and look for a market. Find a market and then develop the product. Uh, I think uh, focusing on building uh, the best team and the best people you can find. Search for those people. Make sure that you work good with them. They're the best people in their market environment. And set out together with them on the rally because it's going to be a tough and long rally and you need the best people alongside of you when you go out to it. Right. A few weeks ago and I interviewed Harv Baron from San Diego who is um, who recruits very, very high-quality executives and says if, you, if you're selecting people to work for your companies that are out in the streets looking for jobs, you, you haven't got a chance of finding the talent you really need. So he specializes in really placing the very best in companies. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about headhunting and picking out yeah. the best people because the best people aren't looking for jobs when you're setting right. up a startup. Right. The third thing is, you know, make sure that... Uh, that your technology is a leapfrog at least or an order of magnitude better than what's out there in the market. You can't just do a 5 or 10% increment and believe that that's going to be sufficient. So make sure that you've really got a breakthrough in your technology and it's not just, you know, a minor increment. And then when you're looking for partners, meaning VCs and money, you know, just don't go to the first VC that will give you money. It's important for you to do due diligence on your investor also. He's going to sit on your board. He's going to be with you often. He's going to ask tough questions. Uh, and he has to be a partner that uh, that his money isn't all what you're going to get from him, but you're looking for strategic advice. You're looking for him to open doors for you. You're looking for him to introduce you to other top executives that can assist the company. And you're looking for somebody that you're going to enjoy working with also. So make sure you select the right investor and your right partner today there was huge excitement in, uh, in, in, in world markets as a result of Warren Buffett's uh, investment here tell us briefly about that in yeah, one minute yeah, it, Warren Buffett uh, uh, for the first time made an uh, acquisition 80% actually not 100% of an Israeli leading company called Iskar he bought 80% of the company for $4 billion. The market cap, uh, the market value of the company is $5 billion. It's a leading company developing uh, uh, blades, if I'm not mistaken, the word is in English. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a family-owned company, actually. It was a private company, not public. And Warren Buffett said that it's probably one of the best companies he's seen in the past 10 years. It's his largest investment he's ever made outside of the U.S. and probably his third largest investment he's ever made in his life. And as he said in the article, he said if there's other Israeli companies with similar financials as his car, to give him a call immediately because he's looking to buy. So I think it's a, a great endorsement for the Israeli market and the stability of the market here and the attractiveness of it. And I'm sure after Warren Buffett coming and investing direct in Israel, such a large sum of money, we're going to see a lot, uh, even more activity. And Israel is just, uh, I believe, at the tip of the iceberg right now in terms of what it's shown and demonstrated in the technology market. You know, it's interesting. I, I mean, there are also stories that Warren Buffett didn't even come here in order to make this huge investment. He just uh, talked to the right people in the company, uh, got the the numbers, uh, find out what the culture was like, and made the decision from afar. Yeah, I mean, that's correct. He, he hasn't come here. I mean, I think he, 
I mean, he, as I mentioned before, he's investing in people. He's not investing yeah. in technology, and he's not investing in future uh, attractiveness. He's investing in people, right. the people he met with, right. the people that have, you know, uh, managed and developed this amazing company and product, and uh, he believes in them and their capabilities. Uh, they uh, obviously had good chemistry together, and based on that, he made, uh, he made his decision. That's why it's called Warren Buffett. <laughs> Very good, boys. <laughs> All right, so we we got a few moments to close off, and uh, I just really want to thank you very much uh, for for the insights you've given us, and really an amazing little-known fact about what's happening in this marketplace. Israel gets a lot of bad publicity, I think, a lot of the time. Probably deserves at least uh, to have some balance and and to and to get the side of it. What do you see for the future? For, venture, for, for for what you're doing at the moment, are they ever going more, more of think, the same or different? I think I think that uh, you know Israel went through what we see uh, a cycle. Uh, yeah. You know the company, the, the technology market stuff in the early '90s. It went through right. a great growth in 2000, then it came down as the whole technology market did in the burst of the bubble, and now it's starting to pick up again. So we've been through a full cycle. During that cycle, I think Israel has built more than 10, 10 to 20 global leading companies in their market domain has taken more than 100 companies public in NASDAQ, and that's in the first cycle. I think coming into the second cycle, right. we have a much stronger entrepreneurship, we have more experience, we have better venture capitals, and so I'm sure we'll do now. better than the first cycle. Thanks, Boaz. That's about it. We have to close in a moment. I just want to tell our listeners that if you want to find out anything about uh, Boaz Dinty or about the company evergreen.com, it is, right? Evergreen.co.il.co.il. Uh, you can write to them or you can get onto my website, which is um, qlcats.com, www.qlcats.com, or write to me directly. Right off my website, uh, there's a contact place for you, Terry at Quantum Leap Catalyst or Terry at qlcatsingular.com. That's the way to get hold of me. If you want to know about quantum leap thinking, as this is really what we've been talking about today and what Boaz has been talking about, feel free to, to, to contact me about that. Uh, we have our show next week. I'll be broadcasting from the United States, not necessarily in San Diego, but from the United States. And I look forward to listening to you or have you call in or listen to us again. So stay with us uh, for the following week as well, and we'll talk to you then. Bye, everybody. Bye, Boaz. Bye-bye. Thank you all very much.